When was the last time that you had a good cry? We tend to see sorrow as something that is inherently bad or negative, don't we? Something that might be okay for a time, but ultimately needs to be corrected. Something that we should grow out of or snap out of. However, I believe that the idea that it is bad to be sad is actually totally wrong, given our present reality. We are a fallen people in a fallen world, and sadness holds a very real place in our reality, in our lives. There is actually such a thing as a good cry. A positive grief. A godly sorrow. As a way to express the God-given emotions that he's given us in our hearts. As a way to, to process real grief and sadness in our fallen world. And as a way to exhibit true repentance in our walk with God. Believe it or not, there is a type of sorrow which leads to great blessing in life. Jesus said so himself. A couple weeks ago, we began looking at the Beatitudes together, which is a series of sayings that Jesus made about how to be blessed by God. And whether or not we think of it in those terms, we all want to be blessed in life. We all want happiness and security and success and comfort and prosperity, blessings of all kinds. And we must recognize that every blessing ultimately comes from God. So we all want to be blessed by God. But how in the world could sorrow or sadness actually lead to God's blessing? We shall see today. I invite you to open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we will be very slowly making our way through this passage over the summer so that we can really mine the depths of the riches and wisdom in Jesus' words here. If you find your place and you keep it open there, let's go ahead and pray that we will be able to do that today, that we'll be able to see what Jesus said and understand and then to apply it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we recognize, as has just been sung, that you are God alone. We are not. We have nothing in us that deserves to be glorified like you. And so we come to you now with open hands and open hearts, and we want to hear from you. We want to look at your word and to have your spirit speak to us. And I pray that you would bring conviction where it is needed, that you would bring encouragement where it is needed, that you would truly comfort us with the words in your word today. God, we thank you so much for the grace that you've shown us. Help us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember that this takes place near the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He just begun recruiting his disciples, preaching his gospel, and performing miracles, which tended to attract huge crowds of people 
wanting to hear him or see him or be healed by him. And that's the context of what brings us to Matthew 5. Read with me in verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... And then every word that he spoke is crucial for us to live by, crucial for us to grasp. We studied the the very first line of his sermon last time, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I have to review this quickly, because if you have to start here, you have to start with being poor in spirit, or else you'll never be able to apply the rest. In fact, if you incur- if you plan to be with us throughout the summer and you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I'd encourage you to go back online and listen to that sermon because everything I say for about 10 weeks is going to be built on that foundation. It's that important, being poor in spirit. I claim that that you won't be able to understand how to, to truly mourn or to be meek or to be merciful, or so on, until you first realize what you bring to the table, which is nothing but sin. That really gets at the heart of what it means to be poor in spirit, realizing that we are empty-handed before God. We are lacking things that we need on the inside. We don't have anything that carries value inherently. We lack what we need to be saved, and we lack what we need to grow spiritually. We are poor in our spirits. So how can we become poor in spirit? Well, first we need to realize that we already are, right? We're already poor on the inside, and we see this especially by getting a correct view of God. Who God is, and then who we are compared to him which we especially get by studying the Word of God, going there and getting glimpses of God. Second, after we understand that, our, our already poverty inside there, we need to admit and believe that that is true, that we are hopeless on our own, no matter how humbling or counterintuitive that may be. And finally, we need to be able to live this out, live out a, a deep need for God, Not trying to earn his grace or his blessings, not relying on ourselves, not being afraid to be vulnerable or weak, getting help when we need to, and, and really never outgrowing our daily dependence on God's mercy and grace. When we realize that, that we have nothing, God says that we will be blessed with just about everything. He'll give us a a place and position in his kingdom, his everlasting kingdom. But being poor in spirit is only the crucial first step. A number of other steps Jesus talks about here that we should take. Because it is possible to be poor in spirit and never feel the way God wants us to feel about it. How does he want us to feel about it? What does he want us to do about it. Well, listen to what, how Jesus continues in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be 
comforted. John Stott explains this. He says, this is the second stage of spiritual blessing. It is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and to mourn over it. Or in more theological language, confession is one thing, contrition is another. Now, mourning might sound like a pretty miserable topic for us to talk about, right? This sunny summer day. You may wish we could skip right to verse 5, right? That would be a mistake. Because Jesus says, this is the path to great spiritual blessing for us. This is one of the ways that we attain God's blessing on our lives. So let's dive deeper. Blessed are those who mourn. Who is Jesus talking about here? Who are those who mourn? The mourning. Who will be blessed here? Now you may have already begun to sense that Jesus wasn't talking about just any kind of mourning. Okay, he, he wasn't talking about anyone who was sad about anything. Otherwise, all we'd have to do to get this blessing is to make our lives as miserable as possible. Right? To, to give ourselves reasons to mourn. To, to have everyone we love die. <laughs> to, to lose all that we own. To make ourselves sick. To, to go out and get hit by a bus. Obviously, God wouldn't want us to manufacture suffering so that we mourn and that we're blessed. There's also a kind of mourning that is flat-out wrong, that Jesus obviously wouldn't bless, a sinful sadness, where we mourn out of jealousy or envy or greed or selfish ambition or anger. You might wonder, well, could this be talking about those who are, are grieving, say, say the loss of a loved one? But well, God's presence and his promises are a special comfort during those times. That's not actually the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here. We need him during those times, desperately. That's not what he's talking about here. Now, Jesus has in mind a particular kind of mourning when he says, blessed are those who mourn. Scholars pretty unanimously agree here that Jesus is speaking about mourning over sin. Mourning over sin. Stott clarifies, he says, it is plain from the context that those here promised comfort are not primarily those who mourn the loss of a loved one, but those who mourn the loss of their innocence, their righteousness, their self-respect. It is not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers, but the sorrow of repentance. So, here's the first point, the first part of the point of this verse. God blesses people who mourn their sin. Okay, God blesses people who mourn their sin. You realize how counterintuitive this promise of blessing it is? How startling it is? This verse could almost be translated, happy are the unhappy. It's a paradox. Think back to the last time that you saw someone else really mourning. Okay, get that picture in your head. Maybe it was at a funeral. Where where someone really just couldn't stop crying or, or sobbing. Or the, after a, a hard breakup in a relationship when 
someone's heart is broken. Think of someone with red eyes and wet cheeks, a quivering mouth, runny nose. Now, how many of you thought, I really wish I was that person right now? No one would wish for that, right? No one wants to mourn. No one posts hashtag blessed pictures from a funeral. No one thinks, boy, that, that grieving person is so blessed right now. In the same way, we wouldn't envy someone who is mourning spiritually either. As someone who's crying, even weeping over their sin, nah, it's not for me. And yet Jesus says, the more broken up you are over this, the more blessed you'll be. This idea of a, a good spiritual sorrow is scattered all over Scripture. Think of, of David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba. Or the, the contrite tax collector in Jesus' parable. Remember the, the guy who just he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He, he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or Paul crying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Or in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a letter that he sent to the Corinthian believers, and that that letter made them mourn or grieve. And he says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas godly grief produces death. This is what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5. Godly grief that produces repentance. Now, many in the church have bought into the notion that Christians should be happy all the time. Remember the old Sunday school ditty? Since Jesus Christ came in and cleansed my heart from sin, I'm in right, out right, up right, down right, happy all the time. Now, yes, Jesus said, I spoke that you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And yes, we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And yes, joy is a vital fruit of the Spirit that we should seek to cultivate in our lives by His grace. But, if we think joy and rejoicing equals simple happiness. We've got it all wrong. See, joy goes far deeper than just sentimentality or surface emotions. And at the very same time that we should be continually joyful and growing in joy, we should be increasingly sober and contrite over sin. These do not contradict each other. In fact, they're totally related. You cannot, the only way to experience the highest fullness of joy is to first experience the lowest sorrows that accompany repentance. 
You cannot fully rejoice in the Lord unless you know what the Lord has saved you from. John Stott says, The Christian life, according to Jesus, is not all joy and laughter. Some Christians seem to imagine that, especially if they are filled with the Spirit, they must wear a perpetual grin on their face and be continuously boisterous and bubbly. How unbiblical can one become? The truth is that there are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. There is not enough sorrow for sin among us. So there's a danger inside the church there. There's also dangers, dangerous ideas outside of it, because this truth runs completely against the grain of our culture. Think about it. God blesses people who mourn their sin. Our society avoids sorrow at all costs. Right? It tries to escape it, or shun it, or to tone it down. Forget your troubles. Drown them out in any way possible. And our society isn't merely neutral towards sin, is it? It openly celebrates sin. Applaud rebellion. Smirk at infidelity. Throw a parade. Party for sin. Wear your right to choose like a badge of honor. Fly your flags. It's all celebrating sin. Matt Smethers observes, Our society doesn't mourn sin. It mourns those who mourn sin. It's very true. From the world's perspective, Jesus' words here are absolutely ridiculous. Even offensive. But, I'll tell you what is really offensive. People daring to dethrone and supplant the God of everything. We might think, why is sin so sad that it should be mourned? You see, so many of our issues with God stem from a defective view of sin and its gravity. I'm convinced of that. Sin isn't just minor mistakes or errors in judgment that we make. Sin is cosmic treason. It's listening to the devil instead of listening to our creator. It's blatantly disregarding what God says. It's displacing God in our affections, in our hearts. It's attempting to dethrone him. It's robbing him of glory that only he deserves. Spitting in his face. Declaring war. Every time that we sin in our lives, we choose ourselves over and against God. And sin, if you think about it, it has led to every evil that we see in our world now. Depravity and decadence, disease, and death. 
because of, of how it offends him and how it hurts his children, God is rightfully, he rightfully detests sin. Sin grieves God. And if we are God's people, it should grieve us as well. So let's get practical. What does it mean for us to mourn? How can we properly mourn our sin? I like Martin Lloyd-Jones' answer. It says, to, to mourn is something that follows of necessity from being poor in spirit. We talked about that. It flows from it. It's quite inevitable. As I confront God and His holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness. I discover my quality of spirit, and immediately that makes me mourn about the fact that I am like that. But obviously it does not stop there. A man who truly faces himself and examines himself in his life is a man who must, of necessity, mourn for his sins also, for the things that he does. Any man who is at all Christian is smitten with a sense of grief and sorrow that he was ever capable of such things in action or in thought, and that makes him mourn. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying that as we grasp our inner poverty, we inevitably mourn about who we are on the inside. It's natural. And, and then as we examine ourselves further by God's word, we should mourn about what we do on the outside. So we might wonder, well, should we force this? And many of us might not feel like mourning. Should, should we make ourselves mourn? And muster up the tears? Cut some onions? Beat ourselves up until we can't help but cry, metaphorically. I don't believe that's what Jesus meant here at all. Because you can foster this without forcing it. You can cultivate it without forcing it. But if you're like me, oftentimes, maybe even today, we feel apathetic towards our sin. We don't, we're, not, we're barely bothered at all. It certainly doesn't evoke this deep emotional response that Jesus seems to want here. So how do we get to that place of truly mourning our sins so we can be blessed by God? Allow me to suggest five steps that I think we can take that can at least help us get there, all right? The first thing we must do is identify sin's presence. To identify sin's presence. We have to notice it in ourselves. To see it. And we need to get really specific here. To name individual sins and own up to them. Right? Because we will never mourn just a general, vague sense of sinfulness or failure. And that's what a lot of us have. We're not going to mourn that. We need to get specific. And the problem with this step is that naturally we're pretty blind to seeing our own sins. And some sins are obvious. Many are not. Most we are oblivious to. It's, it's kind of like if I blindfolded you and had a bunch of random people come and shake your hand, and you had to identify who was shaking your hand just by their handshake. You know they're there. You don't know who it is. 
I believe that the best way that we can have our blindfolds torn away is by God's Spirit working through God's Word. By God's Spirit working through God's Word. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He would come to convict us. And how would he do that? He goes on to say that the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. Show you the truth. Reveal it to you. Open your eyes to it. God's Word is like a lamp that shines into the dark corners of our hearts, exposing sin. So what's the the best way for you to identify the sin in your heart? It'd be pretty simple. Open your Bibles and read. And as you read, to, to take special note of ways that you have fallen short of God's ways. Right, ask questions like these. As you read a passage, ask, ask, is there a sin here, a sin that's described here that I've committed? Is there a, a command given that I failed to obey? Or is there an example here that I'm sh- I should be following that I'm not? Is there a promise that I've failed to believe? A warning that I'm not heeding? Maybe most probingly, have I failed to treat God in the way that He has revealed in His Word? If you start listing out potential sins that you can notice, it can get overwhelming. But ask the Spirit as you as you go on. Is this in me? And I think that can start us on mourning our sin. But to really feel the weight of our sins, we need to go deeper than that. And we need to grasp sin's cost. To grasp sin's cost. And this, I'd, I'd say, just calls for some undisturbed time of, of prayer and reflection. I'd like to quote Colin Smith at length on this point. Bear with me on this longer quote. But try to get what he's saying. It says, Heartfelt sorrow over a particular sin grows when you see what it costs. Take a long, hard look at the cost of this sin to you, to others, and to Christ, and you will enter more deeply into spiritual mourning. Begin with the cost to yourself. Think about the holy life to which God has called you. Think of where you might have been by now if this sin had not held you back. Consider how this sin has limited your usefulness to Christ. Reflect on how it has dampened your worship, dulled your testimony, and kept you at a distance from God. Then you need to consider what this sin of yours has cost others. Nobody sins to himself or herself alone. The sins you are mourning has made you harder to live with, more difficult to work with, and tougher to love. But what if your sin is secret and others who love you know nothing about it? Even if they never find out, your sin is still costly to them because your sin diminishes you, and that robs others of what they might have received from you. Then think about how costly the sin you are mourning was for Jesus. Every sin is brought to the bar of God's justice and receives the punishment that is due. 
Jesus did not hang on the cross for sin in general, but sins in particular. Sins with names, dates, and faces on them. That means that Jesus suffered for the sin you are mourning. The punishment for this sin belonged to you. Every time you fell into this sin again, it accumulated. And God, in his amazing mercy, transferred the whole guilt and penalty that was due to you on account of this sin onto Jesus. Think about this. The sin that you are mourning had its place in all that Christ endured in the darkness at Calvary. He took it on himself, and he suffered because of it. Once we identify the sin in ourselves, and we begin to, to grasp some of, some of sin's cost, it instinctively leads us to the next step, which is to grieve sin's evil. If it doesn't, then we must not have truly completed the first two steps. As we grieve... Whether actual tears flow is nearly irrelevant, as this really happens in our hearts. I'll just say this, that our outward emotions usually reveal what's going on on the inside. We need to feel the weight of being a sinner before a holy God. All sin is evil. All sin deserves hell. But pay close, ten, close attention here. Because if we identify sin, we grasp sin's cost, and we grieve over it, but those don't lead us to the fourth step. It would defeat the entire purpose of mourning. Mourning sin would be pointless at the least, and more likely it would be quite harmful to us. Jesus did not intend us to be perpetually sad all the time. He wanted us to recognize our sin so that we can appreciate his grace for sin. We have to get there. We have to get to the point of receiving sin's pardon. This happens at the cross. Right? We, we've got to move from Romans 7.24's wretched man that I am to the very next verses, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. And then therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we insist on staying there, if we insist on, stay, on, on wallowing in despair, what it means is we, it means we really just don't understand grace. Or maybe we don't want to believe in grace. Heath Lambert says, While it may seem humble and modest to question God's forgiveness, it is actually prideful and arrogant to refuse to believe what God declares to be true about you. Meditating on how miserable and pathetic you are only perpetuates the sinful self-centeredness that led you to sin in the first place. Condemning self-talk still has you standing center stage as you reflect on what you think about what you have done and as you describe what you think you deserve because of what you did. It's all about you. 
problem is there's too much you in all this. You need Christ. It's at this point that you've got to stop condemning yourself and start confessing earnestly and then preach the gospel to yourself. Right? That, that though your sins are many, God's mercy is more. That, that the sin you're mourning was entirely and eternally paid for with Christ's blood. And that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive you and cleanse you. The best news for you today is that you can receive this pardon now. All because of what Jesus did. Receive it in your heart this very moment. Come to him honestly. Give it all over to him. And once we receive God's forgiveness, he empowers us to follow him by repenting. That has to be the final step of mourning our sin. That's where God wants it to lead to, right? What was the verse we quoted earlier? Godly grief produces what? Repentance. Godly grief produces repentance. So we must resolve then to forsake sin's pull. To turn away. To fully intend to not sin like that again. We will inevitably be tempted until the day we die. But, by God's power, we can resist sin. And there will be times that we fall. But God doesn't want us expecting that we will. Alan Redpath once said, God has not promised to forgive one sin that you are not willing to forsake. We needn't bother confessing if we have no intention of quitting. Let me share my story of how God's been teaching me about mourning my sin recently. Not as an example of heroism at all, right? as, as an example of God's grace for my failures. As I first began studying this verse, I became convicted that I wasn't practicing this really at all. And I couldn't remember the last time I mourned over my sin, and all I felt was that vague sense of guilt. Right. So last week I was away at a pastor's conference, and I, I purposely set aside some time while I was there to, to try and let God's Word shine its light into my heart. To shine into the corners of my heart. So I sat down and I, I read a passage. It wasn't really, it was a pretty random passage. First Thessalonians. And as I read, I started jotting things down. Sins to avoid, commands to obey, examples to follow, promises to believe, all those things we talked about, right? And before I knew it, I had literally filled the page from one chapter. And then I started thinking through each one of these things. Am I sinning here? Am I obeying this? Am I believing this? And so on. The results were pretty eye-opening. I think they'd be for all of us. I'd say that for about three-quarters of them, I realize I'm guilty. I've fallen short here. 
Three in particular rose to the surface for me. Laziness, pride, and prayerlessness. I hadn't even thought of that last one much of a sin. Right? God convicted me. Then tried to, to think about the, the cost here, to, to grieve these things and then to receive God's forgiveness. But later that night, uh, the conference speaker was challenging all of us to live above reproach, First Timothy 3, and to, to do whatever we needed to do to confess and repent of our sins. Do whatever we needed to do. God had been impressing me on the verse from James 5 to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's like, I know what I need to do. I don't want to do it. God gave me the courage to turn to two of my fellow pastors there and ask them, can you pray for me? Pray for me? I laid my soul bare to them. I admit that I cried. These godly men prayed for me, with me. I tell you, though, the freedom I felt after that evening was priceless. I had a fresh sense of my need for God, for God's love and grace for me. Listen, the more that you expose sin to God's light, the less power it has over you. The more you bring it into the light, the less power it has over you. You realize how how powerful this practice of spiritual mourning can be in your life? It is absolutely critical if you want to experience victory over those habitual sins that we struggle with. We have to get to this place. God has to give us courage to do it. We miss out on on some of God's greatest blessings for us by refusing to face up to our sin. And don't forget that this was Jesus' main aim in telling his disciples to mourn. His whole point wasn't to mess them up, but to bless them. He wanted them to be blessed, to make them better off now than they were before. Mourning was the pathway to this blessing. And how so? How does God bless those who mourn? Well, read his promise once more. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted. You sense Jesus' mood as he says that? I think it was pure compassion. They shall be comforted. And that's how we'll wrap up our main idea for today. God blesses those who mourn their sin by comforting them with his compassion. God blesses those who mourn their sin by comforting them with his compassion. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Notice the word shall. This is a certainty. We can place our trust in this. That God won't let our tears last forever. We're meant to mourn sin for now. 
but not forever. In his love, God looks down on us in our emptiness and our fallenness. And when he sees our hearts breaking over our sin, he says, I'm going to mend that heart. I'm going to comfort it. How can he mend our hearts? Because he knows exactly what we need to be comforted. He knows exactly what we need. We have a a six-month-old little girl at home now, and, and one of our sons is learning to help with her. So if she's crying, we may ask him, can you go check on your sister? But he knows that she cries for a variety of different reasons. Right? So he'll often ask, Mommy or, or Daddy, what cry is that? Right? Is, that a, is that a hungry cry or a hurt cry or a lonely cry, a, a dirty diaper cry? My son recognizes that that he's got to know what she needs or what she wants in order to comfort her. You know that God knows your cries? He knows what you need, even when you don't. In the case of mourning over our sin, he knows exactly what we need. We need him. And he knows that we need to know that he's there. That, that we're not alone. He knows that we need to know that he cares. That his love won't give up on us. It, it is a, a comfort to know that his anger against us has been quenched by the cross. It is a, a comfort to know that he has freely forgiven our sins. And it's a a deep comfort to know that he's placed an expiration date on sorrow. Ultimately, the deepest comfort that God gives us are found in the good news about Jesus, in the gospel. The only reason we have hope to be comforted is because of what Christ did for us. He mourned over plenty of sins in his lifetime, but never his own. Like he's saying, he had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. He says that's because he had no griefs or sins to mourn over. We did. He chose to mourn over them. And in his deepest moments of mourning, he cried out to his father. And he wasn't comforted. said he suffered and he died so that he could conquer sin once for all. Now his grace and his mercy can cover and cleanse the absolute worst of sinners like me, like you. God's compassion is great towards us demonstrated it powerfully through Christ, and he wants you to experience it firsthand. So won't you learn to mourn? The sorrow will be infinitely greater for anyone who refuses to repent now. I mean, if you don't believe that God will bring comfort one day, where is your hope? 
What hope do you really have? This is where our hope is found. So I encourage you, don't pity or look down on a mourning believer. Because they're going to be exalted one day. For those of us who have already begun to experience God's compassion, don't ever be so mature or grown up that you don't need to cry anymore. Don't miss the fact that God may use you as a vessel for his compassion and his comfort for others. So don't be too timid to pray with others who may confess their sins to you. Don't be too embarrassed to mourn with those who mourn. Because those tears won't last forever. Sorrow is not how things are meant to be. It may be how things are, but it won't be how things will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us to mourn our sin. Sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by them and we don't even know where to start. And in those moments, we pray that your spirit would help us. Teach us, show us, help us feel the weight of our sin so that we can feel the amazingness of your grace. Help us always lead us to joy, lead us to repentance, lead us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.